Well, good morning, everybody. How are we today? Soggy? Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you're here in church. I'm glad you braved the weather. I'm glad you floated in, swam in, drove in, however you got here. I'm glad you're here. Good morning to everybody upstairs in the Well Cafe. Uh, it's just good to be in worship. We've had a great day of worship so far, and I'm going to try not to ruin it. Uh, so we're going to uh, <laughs> we're going to have a, a, a lesson today from our scripture, our provocative scripture from today, uh, and then we're going to end our time uh, by sharing a communion together. So I'm excited about that and glad you're here for that. I want to start. Uh, today by saying, if you want to look at our scripture for today uh, while we're talking about it, uh, if you haven't found it yet, I'm going to put that uh, on the screen, Luke 14, 25 through 35. Thank you, Jessica, for reading that so wonderfully. Uh, I also want to say uh, thank you to Pastor Lauren for being with us the past couple weeks and sharing with us uh, her wisdom and insight. Uh, just so thankful for her and how much she is growing uh, as a pastor, uh, getting to see her do that and the way she serves uh, all on our own, just so thank you, uh, so thankful for you, Lauren. I'm, I know I was blessed uh, by her, and, and I, I assume you were as well. Uh, I did not know that she had this uncanny ability to speak what she was afraid of, and then it would happen in the world, though. <laughs> did you know about this, Lauren? I don't know. Uh, she spoke, if you weren't here last week, about being afraid of severe storms, especially ones that brought the risk of tornadoes with them, and... Lo and behold, a few days later, <laughs> we're all ducking and covering at 2.30, and we're still uh, experiencing that a little bit today. So today's lesson, I'm going to try to talk about how terrified I am of winning the lottery, and we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how it works. If not, you get to do that next time, Lauren. Uh, today, we're continuing in our series called Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time. We're actually nearing the end of this series. We only have a couple weeks left uh, in the story. So I'm glad you're here as we're, as we're wrapping this up. and The story is intensifying uh, a little bit. And so I'm glad you're here as we talk about this. What we've been doing, if you're new here, if you haven't been here for a part of the series, yeah, what we're up to with this is we are immersing ourselves in the story of Jesus. The life, the death, the resurrection as told by the gospel writer Luke. Now for many of you, I know that this is not your first rodeo, not your first time reading through a gospel, not your first time reading through Luke. You've read it a bunch. Uh, you've been through it. For some of you, this is your very first time uh, exploring the story of Jesus in any gospel, let alone uh, specifically Luke. And our hope is, is that together as we do this over the course of these weeks, as we have read through Luke, that we continue to approach everything we do with this deep sense, this deep commitment to know Christ more, this longing to know Christ more and to strengthen that commitment we've made to Christ in our lives. When I was 15, I was going through what a lot of 15-year-olds go through, a musical revolution. <laughs> you thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? At the time, I was learning to play guitar, and so my musical tastes began to change because uh, my cassette tapes that I had collected over time of Boys to Men and Keith Sweat and DC Talk, things like that, were not really conducive to learning to play guitar. And my parents' records, like John Denver and uh, James Taylor, while they were good and I appreciate them now, my 15-year-old self did not appreciate them as much then. There was this other revolution that was kind of going on around me, too, that was uh, important here. There was a sort of a revolution of the medium of music. Technology was changing. CDs were becoming more and more prominent. And they officially, at this point, had replaced cassette tapes as the primary mode of consuming 
music. And anybody who's lived through the vinyl, 8-track, cassette tape, CD, digital, I'm not saying that you're old, I'm just saying anybody who's lived through a transition of technology knows that it is a real pain to switch over that which you have loved and collected into the new medium. We experience that with movies and you know, all kinds of things when we switch from VHS tapes to or beta, well, I don't know what you had, VHS tapes to DVDs to Blu-ray to just straight digital. It happens. And you don't want to be left behind, especially as a 15-year-old, because once CDs are cool and tapes are not cool anymore, even though I had worked painstakingly hard at my cassette deck every night listening to the radio, waiting to push play and record at the same time of my favorite songs <laughs> to make my mixtape, Just to have the DJ talk over the last part of the song anyways, which kind of ruined it. But I could no longer walk around with my Walkman with cassette tapes because that was embarrassing. I needed the new Walkman that had the CD that you could play the CDs on, even though it skipped if a butterfly landed on it. You know, like those things were <laughs> worthless. But you had to have it. You had to have it. So uh, here I am, uh, you know, trying to, as, as a 15-year-old as a and a meager income, learn to play guitar, be cool, and get CDs and listen to music all at the same time. It was tough because I had a very meager income. And so uh, I spent most of that meager income on Guitar World magazines and Mountain Dew. And uh, I didn't have much left over to purchase music. Plus, I, I, CDs were expensive still. And I lived in a small town. We didn't have a record store. We didn't have a Walmart, you know. So I couldn't, like, just, I couldn't just go to the record store either. And so it was, it was hard to come by. So you can imagine, as I'm sitting there as a 15-year-old, thumbing through the latest issue of Guitar World, past the article of want to play like Jimi Hendrix. I'm like, of course I do. And then I come across my salvation I come across the answer to my prayers. I come across what is going to save me and my chronic uncoolness and my deep desire to listen to music constantly. I flip the page and I see there the greatest mail order club in the world. <laughs> and there, in big Bold letters comes the gospel, the good news that Columbia House Cl Record Club can give you 12 CDs for just one penny. And I'm like, what? This is impossible. How do they do it? And I think to myself, they must really love music and people. <laughs> because they want people to have this music. Anybody else? Yeah. How else did you get your Dave Matthews and 10,000 Maniacs CDs? I don't know. There was a lot of fine print at the bottom of that ad that I neglected to read. It didn't mean much to me at the time. But it explained to you that the hook was that you had to purchase X amount of their products, right, at an extortionate markup. And that were shipped to you at fees that suggested that their warehouse was on Mars. And, and you, didn't, you didn't read it. But the most devious part of this little hustle, right, the reason they call things like Columbia House and BMG a club 
is that each month they would send you a CD that you hadn't asked for unless you mailed back a card saying that you don't want that CD. And if you didn't, right, then you were in trouble, right? And like sending, I mean, let's, let's face it, like that's, that's a lot of foresight and organization and responsibility for a 15-year-old. Like not really in my wheelhouse at the time. And so this is where it kind of deteriorates rapidly and somewhat predictably that I received my first set of CDs, right? They don't send you all 12 at once. They send you some of them. That way you can uh, fulfill your terms of the agreement. agreement. And basically, I just forgot about the whole thing, didn't send the card in, just, just left it alone, right? That's what 15-year-olds do. That's the extent of my responsibility, is that if something bad happens, just forget. Like, just look the other way. Like, <laughs> so I don't fill out the card, and it comes back. And, of course, I, you know, I, don't, I don't pay for this new CD uh, because I don't have a checking account. I'm 15, and I barely have enough money for the Mountain Dew that I want so desperately. And suddenly, I was in violation of the whole agreement meaning that I not only owed the full price of that CD that I didn't want in the first place, probably 10,000 maniacs, but I also owed the full price of the CDs that were given to me for free at an exorbitant markup with lots of penalties and fees. I should have read the fine print. Fine print is a part of all of our lives, right? That's where we hide the stuff that's not marketable. The stuff that would probably convince you to not get whatever the thing is, to not sign on the dotted line of some contract, or to not get whatever it is that they want you to have, right? We do that all the time now on the internet. Like, check this if you've read the terms of agreement and agree with it. Like, totally. <laughs> I'm not reading that. I'm certain they're not going to do anything bad with my private stuff, right? Cool. It's going to be fine. We don't read it, right? Like, because it's just, a, it's a lot. And then we hide all the stuff in there, that stuff that sounds scary and stuff that would really tell us the actual costs of what it is we are agreeing to. What we learn very quickly when we read through the Gospel of Luke, especially this passage, is that Jesus does not have fine print. He lays it all out there. He wants to be extremely clear <laughs> about the road ahead. So much so that it sounds like he's really trying to convince people not to follow him. <laughs> Over the course of these weeks leading up to Easter, we have challenged everybody to read through uh, the Gospel of Luke. We gave out little cards that have all the readings on them. Uh, if you're new or you, you've kind of lost your card or whatever, we, we still have those, I think, somewhere. They're at least online on our website. You can see that and you can catch up pretty easily. I hope you do. But the big part of why we want people to do that to read straight through the gospel, is because when you do that, you come across parts of the Bible, parts of Scripture that are right there, not hidden, but that we often skip over. Or preachers, because they're hard, we don't want to preach about them, right? And so we don't hear them, and we miss them. But when we read closely and we see it, when we read through the whole gospel of Luke and we find places like this where Jesus says hard stuff, we get a full picture of who Jesus is and what it truly means to commit to a life that follows him. That it's a costly decision. And that becomes all the more clear when we read through that Jesus isn't trying to hide anything. The hard sayings of Jesus like this one are ones that we skip, but we can't skip them when we come across them. They tend to stare us down, look us square in the face, and we can't look away from them because they're right there. As we look at our scripture for today and we read it, I will admit that I have often read this 
hearing a tone from Jesus that is adversarial. One that Jesus in disgust turns around and says, if you want to follow me, you got to hate your family. you got to hate your own self. How about that? Right? And take up your cross and follow me only then. Those are the true disciples, right? Like that's the tone I would hear out of Jesus' voice. And it's, it's mostly because that verse 26 right there. We see this word hate. <sighs> hate. What does this mean? Does Jesus really mean I have to hate my family in order to be a disciple? It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother or wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You know what, Jesus, if that's it, I'm sorry, I don't know. I'm just going to be real. Like, I love my wife. I love my kid. If that's what it takes, like, I have to hate them? I don't know. And that doesn't sound like all the other stuff he's said either. Before we go much further, we really have to address this. It's a troublesome verse for me. It's a troublesome verse for many people. But what Jesus is saying here is not that we have to hate our family, right, in the sense of, like, I hate you, right? Like, I'm done with you. I'm get out of here. Not that kind of hate that comes from anger and vengeance, bitterness. What Jesus is doing here is called hyperbole. We all know what that means. It's You use it all the time. It's an over-exaggerated statement that we use. It's not meant to be taken literally, right? We say things to express, you know, extravagantly what it is that we mean, right? We say things, I work my fingers to the bone, you know, that's not really what is happening. But you want to express how hard you've actually been working. When you say to somebody, like, I told you literally a million times. That's like a complex hyperbole, right? <laughs> because you're using literally hyperbolically. It's like pro-level hyperbole. But hyperbole is quite a, a useful rhetorical tool, right? When you're speaking to people and you want people to really listen, when you want to shock them into listening and for them to understand how important the gravity of what it is that you're saying, you say things shocking like this. And that word hate is not new to Jesus. It's actually a Semitic hyperbole. It's, it's part of the Jewish faith and culture. Rabbis used it all the time to talk about saying farewell to things, to leaving things behind in order to embrace something new. What Jesus wants to be aware of is the weight of his words when he says, if you want to follow me, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. So what we encounter here is not a scolding or a harsh tone. This is more of a compassionate Jesus, I think. Because we have to remember that there's large crowds gathered. And they're gathered because Jesus has been doing some awesome stuff. And they're gathered around because they love Jesus. Jesus has been changing their world, has been changing their lives. Why wouldn't they come and follow him? These are enthusiasts. They're enthusiastic about Jesus. This isn't reluctant people. This isn't resistant people. These are people who have accepted Christ and that are in his midst. They've gathered because the good news of Jesus has spread and they're there to be with it. So what we read, what we read then is a response of Jesus to these enthusiastic persons who want to accept Christ, who want to follow him everywhere he goes, to see what it is that he will do and 
potentially participate and partner with him in that work. Jesus speaks to these persons who seem to be unaware that this journey that he is on to Jerusalem, though they sing of praise and victory and triumph, though they speak of a kingdom, he is not just going to Jerusalem, but he's going to the cross. And so this compassionate statement that Jesus makes is to let them know I want you with me, but I want you to know up front, I want to be totally transparent with you what this is going to take, like what I am going to go through. That's why he tells these two tiny parables here about the builder and about the king, not measuring the costs and how embarrassing and shameful it is for them to realize once they are in a place, they cannot finish what it is that they have started. Jesus wants to spare these people of that. I don't want you to end up somewhere that you were not prepared to be. To be asked to give something you were not prepared to give. I want to give you an out now. And let you know this is what it's going to take. That's the intent of Jesus here. So I read this differently now. I read it with a compassionate voice that Jesus has. A bit of what I glean from this, this text that we read and from all of, God, all of the gospel of Luke and this person of Jesus that we are getting to know, some of us for the first time, some of us again, um, is that Jesus wants to be upfront about the demands of discipleship. But we don't want to confuse that with the demands of grace here. Jesus is not telling you what the demands are to receive his grace, Right? The good news is that grace is free. Jesus has shown that throughout the scriptures. Healing of the blind man, right? Healing of the sick, raising of the dead. The peop people that have never walked are walking again. And never once does Jesus say, now, I'll do this, but here's the fine print, right? If you accept this healing, you're also accepting a cross. It's going to come along with it. No, Jesus just heals. He just gives. He gives life everywhere he goes. You'll read in the very next chapter, chapter 15, where Jesus talks about this extravagant, boundless love that defies all human rationality. We read the, the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son or the prodigal son, as some of you might know. Uh, and he tells the story of, of undeserved unworthiness that comes in front of God and receives grace that was unwarranted. It was free. There's no demands for God's grace. It's just given. That's radical. And, and, and this is what Jesus is about. That's not what he's talking about here. The good news is that life is available to all. Restoration. There's no strings attached. No fine print. Jesus just gives it. And that's good news. And that's why he's got crowds following him. But then comes the challenge. That if you truly want to be my disciple. If you truly want to follow me, if you truly want to do the things that I'm going to do, if you truly want to be a part of proclaiming this kingdom that I've been talking about, if you want to come and heal the sick, if you want to come and give sight to the blind, if you want to come and be with people who have been forgotten about, if you want to do that, not only is it going to ruffle some feathers, but it's going to cost you something. Because grace is free. But it isn't cheap. It's not cheap. 
it has a high cost. And that cost is borne by the giver of that grace. The giver of grace bears the cost of that grace. And Jesus wants to be right up front with that. I am here to proclaim the kingdom of God and to enact that kingdom here on earth. And it's going to cost me something. In fact, it's going to cost me my life. And I'm going to do it whether or not anybody comes with me. But I sure would love people to be a part of that. But there are no asterisks here, right? No hidden conditions or fine print. Jesus says straight up, the way I am going is the way of the cross. It's not optional. To be a Christian for us is to take on Christ. At the end here we see, he talks about salt. Salt must be salty, otherwise it's not salt. Right? And it doesn't just turn into pepper. It just loses its saltiness and it's no good. Likewise, Christians must follow Christ. Otherwise, what's the point of the name? Again, let me reiterate, grace is free. That doesn't need a label of Christian or whatever to receive God's grace and love. That's boundless. That's beyond our comprehension and beyond our ability or our judgment. Thank goodness. But when we talk about calling ourselves Christian and disciple, unless we're taking on Christ and Christ's cross, what's the point of the name? The calling to follow Christ, to be a disciple, is the calling to take up our cross, to embrace a life of sacrifice and denial. It's a call to leave behind an old self and old ways and to put on a new self in Christ while following after him. This narrow kingdom road that we follow. And the cross is not optional in that because the kingdom comes through that. So as we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we do so fully expecting that radical grace to flood our lives, the healing and comfort that comes from a, a Savior and a Messiah, a good shepherd. But we also, in that commitment, understand that as we experience that healing and new life, that we also take up that burden that Christ bore. And we follow him down that road to spread that good news, to proclaim that gospel, not only with our words, but with our lives for others. And we have no idea what that might look like, right? We have no idea what that cross is. We have no idea what that sacrifice might mean or, or, or what that might ask of us. I, we don't know. Christ is saying this hyperbolically because, again, as you commit, say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. They don't all pick up crosses right then and start marching around with them, right? He's saying that here's like the worst I can think of. you got to hate your family. you got to hate everybody who loves you and whom you've loved. And you got to take up this death machine, right, this executioner's tool. He's thinking of the worst possible scenarios and saying this is, this is where it might go. It might not, but it probably will. And if you're not willing to do this, if you're not willing to do this, I don't know if you're ready for it. 
here in the 21st century in America, it's hard to imagine me being crucified for my faith in Christ. It's not something that really happens now here. In the first century, yes. The early church, absolutely. People died all the time. People were martyred all the time for their faith because they followed Christ and they refused to back down from that. Today we don't face that quite as much. My, I could wear a cross around my neck. I can wear a big, like, Jesus is my homeboy shirt out in public. And I don't face persecution from the government or from the, the dominant religious institution where, you know, where I live. I don't face any of that. I face a place that actually embraces that. I face something much different today. And I don't want to say that death is not completely off the table, right? Like, you might be heading that way. There are certain people throughout our history and our recent history that have experienced that. I'll, one by name is Martin Luther King, who followed this path of Christ to seek justice for all. And it did cost him his life. It did cost him his life. And he didn't want to die, but he knew that he might. If you've read his speech the day before he was assassinated, it's eerie how he kind of felt it coming. But there are many people that were a part of that movement that did lose their life because of it, but many that didn't, that just faithfully pursued what it meant to embrace justice, and it inconvenienced them. Some of them, they got jailed for it, but people embraced it all the same because they knew this is where God was calling them, and they were willing to give up whatever it took to see God's justice enacted on earth. I don't know that, what that's going to cost us, I do know that I really like convenience and I really like comfort. That's kind of one of the nice things about living where we live, being who we are, is we have all those things. I can get things when I want them. You know, I don't have to wait long for food. If I have to wait longer than four minutes in the drive through line for my food, how dare they make me wait four minutes in my car? I didn't have to get out and shut off the engine, right? Like, how dare they, right? You know, I, I'm realizing more and more that that has become some of the most important things to us, our comfort, our convenience. And the more and more we can sacrifice that on the altar of our faith and be willing to be inconvenienced, to be willing to be uncomfortable for others, to be willing to leverage our life for the sake of someone else, we have taken up our cross like Christ. I believe that's what we're called to. So as we come and share in communion tonight, I, I want that to be on our hearts. Each and every time we do this, it is a reminder of this very fact, this twofold fact for us. That God's grace changes our lives and it's free. We come to the table every time as people who have admittedly, myself admitting, confessing that I have failed Christ. I haven't always taken up my cross. I haven't always been faithful to that. I try as hard as I can, but sometimes I'm not willing. I come and I'm still invited to come and partake of the grace that Jesus gave to all who walked a road that nobody walked with him at the time. And I'm able to receive. And I remember the high cost that Christ paid for me. But I also come, and as I receive the body and blood separately, then reconstituted in my own body, I am reminded of Christ's call and I am invited again to take up that cross and to live a life of sacrifice in order to offer the grace that was so generously offered to me 
for the world in partnership with Christ. So as we come this morning to the table, I invite that to be on your heart to remember how free that gift of grace is, but also our call to take up our cross, to be inconvenienced, to find ourselves uncomfortable, to be willing to give away our life for others so that they might know the grace and the love that we have. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time together. We confess that we have not always been faithful to your call to give up our lives. Sometimes, God, I love my life a little too much to give it up. But regardless, God, you gave everything for us. And so as we come to receive that gift of grace tonight, today, God, we pray that your spirit overwhelms us and leads us forward as people willing to leverage our life for others so that they may know life. It's in your name we pray. Amen.